Bernie Madoff, the architect of the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, died this past week. Uh, I read that Madoff defrauded investors of $20 billion. I don't even have a reference point for how much money that is, but I know it's an awful lot of money. So ever a person who had a, a more appropriate name than Bernie Madoff, that dude made off with a whole lot of money. So this is honesty time. I think many Christians have a fear of having a similar thing happen to us. And I'm not talking about a monetary loss, not a Ponzi scheme, but this. We don't want to believe in something that's false. We don't want to believe in someone or something that doesn't really exist, if you know what I mean. We don't want to be fooled like Madoff fooled his investors. For Christians, we put all our eggs in one basket, haven't we? All our eggs are in one basket. We have surrendered control of our lives to God. Can you put more eggs in a basket than that? You know, we Christians like to talk about our faith, and I think that's good, but we don't typically say much about our doubts. Frankly, I think often we're embarrassed by them. Sometimes Christians are plagued by doubts. And we don't like to talk about this very much, especially at church. And in fact, there are many churches where it is completely not safe to talk about any doubts that you have. It's not an environment for honesty. Yet sometimes Christians have doubts. How we deal with our doubts is truly important, though. Here are four of the primary questions or doubts that plague believers sometimes. Does God really exist? Really, really? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is the Bible truly the Word of God? Do miracles really happen? Now, these are not all the questions that uh, we have, but these are four of the primary ones. And especially, just think about the environment in which we're living right now, especially living in such a secular and cynical culture. It's a challenge to have faith and keep the faith, isn't it? Doesn't living in this secular and cynical culture make it more challenging for us to believe? I think it has to. So to me, this is an, an absolutely crucial question. How do we deal with our doubts? Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Um, and quite, uh, quite honestly, a few weeks ago, I kind of hit a lick and a promise uh, at this text as we covered um, a lot of material but I felt like this is a text that's so crucial, we need to return to it and really dive into it this morning. So um, we're going to be looking at uh, an event from the life of John the Baptist, and maybe not the highest point of his life. Luke chapter 7, and I'll begin reading in verse 18. Luke seven eighteen. John's disciples told him about all these things. And uh, I'm going to stop for a second. If you read the first part of chapter 7, these things, there are stories of Jesus miraculously healing the sick and raising the dead, and I believe that's what these things refers to. John's disciples told him about all these things, 
Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me." Now, for me, this question that John the Baptist asks, uh, really he sends to Jesus, is one of the most fascinating questions in all the New Testament. Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or are we supposed to expect somebody else? And one essential detail I need to supply here. In Matthew's account of this event, we learn that John the Baptist is in prison at this point, and to me, this is a key detail. John is in prison because he dared speak the truth to power, To the Roman official Herod, John declared, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. It's an immoral thing. Um, And eventually John will be beheaded. He's not going to get out of prison. So John is in prison, and in prison you have a lot of time to think, to think and ponder and contemplate. In some cases, not a whole lot else to do. Uh, And for a prisoner at this point, unless they were under house, house arrest, the conditions are going to be harsh. This is not a 21st century uh, minimum security prison, right? It's not a white collar country club prison that we, you know, we've all heard about in the in the media. And John knows it's possible that he'll never be released, and he knows that he might be executed. And in fact, that's what ultimately happens as he's behead, he'll be beheaded. And so John sends two of his disciples to Jesus with this question: Are you the one who is to come? Or should we be expecting somebody else? Now think about who is asking this question. This is John the Baptist, the, the prophet. This is Elijah 2.0. The voice of one sent calling in the wilderness, repent, prepare the way for the Lord. The bold and fearless prophet whose life's work was to prepare the way for Jesus, the Lord, the God's Messiah, the Christ, and he, says, he said of Jesus, he, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he also said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. And if you remember the story, even when Jesus and John were still babies in their mother's wombs, when their mothers visited together, the baby John leaps in his mother's womb in response to being in the presence of Jesus. Even then, while still in the womb, he was responding to Jesus. And John is either the first or among the very first to understand much about Jesus' true identity. And John's entire life's work was to prepare the world for Jesus, the coming one. And now as he sits in prison doing time, he has nothing but time on his hands, he begins to wonder. He begins to ponder, even to doubt what he has known all along, Maybe his mind's playing tricks on him at this point. He has a crisis of faith. Is Jesus really the one? John, who has spent basically his whole life declaring that Jesus is indeed the one. John was possibly the person most sure of who Jesus actually was. This most powerful proclaimer of Jesus' identity, now he's asking, is he really the one? What have I done? 
What have I done? I may die here. Is it possible that I was wrong all along? Have I thrown away my life for no good reason? Is Jesus really the one like I've been saying all along? Or am I one in a long line of false prophets? It has happened before. Have I been duped? Could I be wrong about him? And I bring this up not to throw stones at the prophet John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus said about John, among those born of women, and I think that includes about everybody, among those born of women, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. I know I'll never be half the man John was, so I'm not trying to tear down a truly great man. But here's the reality. Even the greatest people have moments of doubt. The greatest people, even the strongest, have moments when their faith is weak. Isn't that true? Abraham, the father of the faithful, who lies about his identity because, who lies about his wife's identity because he's afraid. Or Moses, who, uh, exasperated, becomes angry and disobeys God, strikes the rock to get water instead of speaking to it. Peter, that bold follower of Jesus, when it gets too hot, he denies the Lord. And John the Baptist, who, who begins to have these serious questions. Even the strongest have moments when their faith is weak. And there may be another reason why John asked this question of Jesus. Think about this. When Jesus begins his public ministry, recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, Jesus preaches from this text. Jesus says this about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it looks like Jesus may be paraphrasing this passage here when he gives his answer back to John. Um, Maybe it's hard for John to reconcile this. Jesus' ministry means sight for the blind, good news for the poor, and freedom for prisoners. And yet here's John rotting in prison. There's a tension There is this apparent inconsistency between what God has promised and what is actually happening in this moment. And so maybe the subtext for John's question is, aren't you supposed to be the Messiah, the one who gives freedom to prisoners? Then please, please get me out of here. This business about freedom for the prisoner, I'm certainly not seeing it. So it appears John is facing a crisis of faith, doubts are creeping in, because at least in his mind, maybe there's an inconsistency between what God had promised and what he was performing at this moment. And so John asks his question, and he sends it to Jesus. Are you the one? And I absolutely love, love, love Jesus' reply. Jesus doesn't merely say yes. Anybody could say that. Yes, I'm the one. In fact, lots of people had said it. There were lots of false messiahs, right? It would be so easy for anybody to say, yes, I am, I'm the one. That wouldn't help much. A claim is just that, a claim. Here's what Jesus says. You go back and tell John what you've seen. 
Go back and report to John uh, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. If I can give you the, the subtext here, the subtext is believe the evidence. Believe the evidence. There's plenty of it. Jesus fits the bill. He didn't just claim to be the one. He proved it. There was a demonstration, not just a proclamation. These were no empty claims. All of Jesus' actions were, in fact, declaring, I am the one. Capital T, capital O. I am the one. And part of what that means to John is this, John, you're not rotting in prison for nothing. It's not all in vain. The one to whom you have surrendered your life, he keeps his promises. Ultimately, he will prevail. His kingdom, his reign, it endures, and he rewards those who diligently seek him. John, it may not happen on your timetable right when you want it to, but believe it and know it. Know I am the one. And I would say to you this morning, if sometimes you have doubts, you're in good company. If sometimes your faith falters, you're in very good company. Very few of us, maybe none of us except for Jesus, have 100% faith and 0% doubts. Faith does not work that way. Because... Uh, Faith operates in the human arena, real people in real life, in the real world. The presence of some doubt, underline this, the presence of some doubt doesn't mean your faith isn't authentic. The presence, the presence of some doubt doesn't completely cancel out our faith. In fact, to the contrary, sometimes doubt means you're willing to honestly wrestle with the tough questions in order to have a genuine faith, a faith that has been tested. And I think this may be as important as anything that I say today. Um, a, a child's faith, a juvenile faith, often works like this. I believe because of what I've been told. I believe because the people around me have faith. I believe because mom and dad believe. That's a, a, a child's faith, and that is a stage of faith, and that is okay. But asking the tough questions, wrestling with the tough questions, that's part of coming to an adult faith. That's part of having an authentic faith, an own faith. I've looked at the evidence. I've asked the questions, even the tough questions. I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with them, and I believe. So it can even be healthy to ask the tough questions. Sometimes we feel bad because we have asked hard questions and we have gone through a period of doubt. A lot of times a period of doubt is a stage toward coming to an adult-owned, mature faith. And I think God's smart enough to know that, don't you? So we need to remember a couple of key things uh, in regard to this we don't always fully understand what God is doing, not even close. We're not wired up for that. Uh, if, we do, if we did, we might be almost as smart as God, and we're not that. None of us sees everything or even almost everything. We don't always fully understand what God is doing, and God isn't operating on our timetable. He's on his own timetable. 
But we do need to keep in mind God keeps his promises. The answers don't always come when we want them. Sometimes we go through a dark night of the soul before we get the answers. And the answers don't always come in the way that we want them to. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes uh, we have to wrestle, and that can be tough. Sometimes we're like John. We're left to wrestle with our doubts. You know, uh, typically when we go through this period when we have doubts, it's not because we haven't been given enough evidence. There's enough evidence on which to believe. And I want to talk about that for just a few minutes today, and then I'm going to quit. Let's, I, just want to rev- I just want to review just a bit of the evidence on which we have to believe, and, and then I'll be done. First of all, think about all the evidence of order and design in the universe that eloquently testifies that there is a supreme being, a grand architect behind it all. This nearly infinite amount of evidence in the universe Just think about this one thing. Non-living matter does not suddenly, inexplicably spring to life and then organize itself into a fully functioning universe. How can that be? And then for the atheist atheist model to be true, this non-living matter had to inexplicably, inexplicably just spring to life and then it had to which never ever happens, even that part. But then, uh, because a trillion times out of a trillion, life begets life. Plants produce seeds. Animals have babies. Uh, But for the atheist model to be true, this non-living matter had to just come to life somehow, and then it had to be able to carry on all the biological processes necessary to sustain life and increase in complexity. And that's ridiculous. Respiration, photosynthesis, digestion, reproduction. Even something as simple as a watch means that there had to be a watchmaker. A tornado uh, does not go through a junkyard and produce a new Cadillac. It does not work that way. All the evidence, uh, all the evidence of order and design in the universe eloquently testifies that there is a supreme being, a grand architect behind it all. So that's first. Secondly, Jesus' unique life and teachings, his glorious resurrection, and his unparalleled impact in shaping the world all testify that he was who he claimed to be. If I throw a rock into a pond, that produces ripples. If you and I uh, bought a, a big catapult and we used it to hurl a boulder into a lake, that would produce big waves, wouldn't it? But Jesus did not just make waves. Jesus' life, it caused a tsunami. And here we are 2,000 years later, and his impact in the world is, is huge. It is unique. And his claims are further buttressed by the fact that his apostles were willing to go to their deaths because they would not stop insisting that they had seen him risen from the dead. Insane people will not knowingly and willingly die for a lie. And so I just want to say again, Jesus' unique life and amazing teachings, his glorious resurrection and his unparalleled impact in shaping the world all testify that he was indeed who he claimed to be. Third and finally, 
the Bible has, as, as you read this, you pick up on it, the Bible has such remarkable impact into human nature. I'm sorry, such remarkable insight into human nature and the human condition. It is beyond uncanny, it's supernatural. The Bible is of supernatural origin and testifies to the power and glory of the one who inspired it. The Bible has such remarkable insight into human nature and the human condition. And I've just talked about this for five, maybe five minutes this morning, the, the evidence. There are people that write 400-page books on the evidence. This is just scratching the surface. But here's what we're dealing with in reality in this world. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. We're called to hold on to a hand that we cannot see, and that's a great challenge. I've never seen heaven. I've never seen God per se. I've never seen Christ. But it's kind of like the wind blowing. I don't see the wind, but I see its impact. I see what it does. We, we see the evidence. We see God's spirit and God's wind at work in this world. But we're called to walk by faith in a world that is not always friendly to faith. In fact, sometimes it's hostile to faith. So that's a challenge. And so sometimes in life, we're just, if you can't be real at church, where can you be real? Sometimes in life, we may wrestle with doubts or we may go through a season uh, where we deal with doubts in our lives. But it is a struggle that's worth the effort. One day we'll see him face to face, the one in whom we believe. All our doubts will melt away, faith becomes sight, and we walk in grand victory forever. In the meantime, we walk by faith, described very beautifully by a singer-songwriter who lived in Bowling Green for a time, Michael Card. To hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. To hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. That's what God has called us to. Maybe you're ready to respond to that call today. Maybe you're ready, you're at a place in your life where you're ready to put your trust in Jesus and repent of your sins, surrender control of your life to God, be united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, be united with Jesus in baptism. Or maybe you have come to the Lord at a time in your life, but you're ready to come back home. Uh, whatever your, the need is on your heart, you can just uh, make your way to the front. Let's stand and encourage each other. Let's sing together. <laughs>